At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is a familiar passage. You learned it a lot in children's ministry, and it made you feel real special for being a kid in the church, which is good. The disciples, as they often did, were arguing over who was greatest in the kingdom. And they said, well, let's take it to Jesus and just ask him. So when they ask who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, underneath that is the question, is it me? (laughs) And what do I need to do to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is an interesting question, isn't it? What does it take to be great in God's kingdom? What is the primary spiritual virtue? What is the quality that we're supposed to have to be great in God's kingdom? What makes a person, you could say, properly religious? What is the cardinal virtue that we ought to cultivate? And this is, a, this is something kind of funny here because he said, I'll tell you, somebody who's just like this little kid right here, which is not what the disciples wanted to hear. And every culture around the world has its own answer to what is the most important thing and what makes a person great in the kingdom of heaven. And the gospel comes to every one of these cultures, societies throughout the world and throughout history and says, this little child right here. Jesus identifies the the primary spiritual virtue, you could say, as childlike faith. And specifically, what does he mean there? He says it like a child. There are a lot of things that children do. What, what is it about a child that Jesus wants us to cultivate in his kingdom? And it's the humility of a child. Do you see that? Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, which is the opposite of what the disciples were doing. They were trying to jockey for position and climb the ladder and get to the top. He said, no, the opposite. You must humble yourself like this child. A child is not too proud to believe the simple gospel. You don't present the salvation message to a kid and they go, well, that just seems a little simple, don't you think? I feel like I've outgrown that. Maybe when I was two, but now that I'm four, I feel like I'm beyond such simple things. And we look at that and we go, well, children are dumb. Children are gullible. Children will believe anything. But isn't it interesting that that is the quality that Jesus says, you got to be more like that. You got to be more willing to believe what the gospel says just because it's true. It's the gospel. And what's so great about the gospel, too, I'll just add this, is the gospel has range and has depth. So a child can hear the gospel, understand it, and respond to it. But so can somebody who is some kind of intellectual or academic or philosopher. There are world-renowned minds that have encountered the gospel and been struck by how profound it is. And my four-year-old son also has prayed to ask Jesus into his heart. It's got range. It's got depth. You can learn the basics in like five minutes, but there is a depth to the gospel that you are never going to get all the way to the bottom. Nobody has finished studying their Bible and said, well... That's all there is to know now. That's the gospel. And you all know what it is, but let's remind ourselves. What is it that we must be childlike in our belief? That God loved the world so much 
that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. We believe that every person, every man and woman and child is a sinner. Psalm 51 says that we were born into iniquity. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. It comes out of you. God is good and righteous and must judge that. God can't just ignore that. Parents who ignore their children's bad behavior are not good parents, are they? You see them in the grocery store sometimes. They're banging their head on the floor for a box of Lucky Charms. And they're like, you know, calm down there, Jimmy. It's okay. And you're like, you got to do something with your kid, right? Well, extrapolate that out to the, the most deep, profound justice of God. How can God allow sin to go unpunished? But God is also love, isn't he? So God said, I must judge this sin, but I'll do whatever is necessary to save those who will come to me in faith. The house is burning, and God chopped a big old hole in the side of the wall. He said, this way, everybody. Jesus Christ hung on the cross, the incarnate God-man, taking on the sin of the world, taking the wrath of his Father. He died there, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of his Father, where he makes intercession for us even now. He sent his Holy Spirit to fill us up. That's the good news. Believing that is what is required of us to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus doesn't say, this smart, shrewd, intellectual scientist who can break down all the nuances of salvation is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, somebody who's like this kid right here, that's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is simple, and yet it's deep. But there are many who cannot receive the simplicity of the gospel. It's offensive to them to bring something to them that is so basic. I've read stories and testimonies of people who were broken and desperate, and they say things like, I'm ready to try anything. And you put the gospel out there, and they're like, name in the Syrian. And they're like, what? That's it? You think it's that easy? If it was that easy, don't you think I would have figured it out by now? And it, it, it's that ancient sin of pride, isn't it? And especially today, I want to focus on what we're going to call intellectual arrogance as a barrier to believing in Jesus. And believe me, intellectual arrogance is a barrier because it prevents you from becoming like a child. You think you're too smart, therefore you are too proud, to humble yourself. And there's two strains of this we're going to talk about today. There, there's what you could call the modern and the postmodern angle on this. Both sides of the same coin. When I say modern, I, I refer to what you might call scientism. The belief that everything must be demonstrated empirically, it must be proven, it must be mathematically figured out. And then you've got the postmodern side of it, which is more existential. They look at their own life. They look at their own circumstances or the way the world is going. And the way that they have come to understand that trumps any ability to humble themselves before God. And it's very interesting to watch. You're watching it happen day by day. Our culture is shifting from the one to the other. And there have been godly theologians that have been warning us about this for a long time. And they made these really boring lectures about postmodernism and oh, why are we talking about this? And then here it comes rampaging through our, our schools and our streets and our government and we wonder where it came from. We're shifting from the demand and insistence upon evidence. We're now shifting to the demand and insistence upon experience. And that is the final arbiter of truth. But here's the deal. The gospel, again, has range and depth and can answer both of those things. 
and they are both wrong, and they both provide open doors to get to the gospel. Charles Spurgeon used to say, referring to the scriptures, he'd say, wherever I begin, I start there, and I make a beeline for the cross. You can do that with just about anything. When somebody wants to bring up their philosophy or their idea or their worldview or their religion, let's start there and let's make a beeline for the cross. So we're going to take some time to examine this today. But in both cases, the solution is to call people to humility to accept the gospel by faith alone. And we need to be careful, while we want to try to answer objections to both sides of this coin, that we do not begin to play that game. Because neither one of those things is the game that God has set before us. And this can be difficult. For example, when you go to a culture like Nepal or India, where Hinduism is so, of course, universal, and to try to speak essentially a different language of grace through faith and forgiveness and resurrection can be very difficult. But you can't start using those thought patterns and those traditions to articulate the gospel because you've already started in the wrong place. In the same way, in our culture, we think, well, we're going to immerse ourselves in the modern world, and that's how we're going to get people to be saved. Well, that's not true, because what the Bible says is that we must be humble and be like little children, which is, flies in the face of that. Nor should we be immersing ourselves in the postmodern world either. Saying, this is our ticket to salvation. The, the church and the gospel is to be above all of that, to be outside of it, to speak into it, to go into it like Jesus did in that incarnational way and, and lead people out of it. But it all comes back to humility like a child, faith alone. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. You probably know this passage, but this is so important for us because we're well-meaning people and we want to help. But sometimes we get so far down into the weeds that we can't even get to the good news of Jesus. So Paul put it this way. He said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He refused to cater to Greco-Roman culture, which valued the orator the philosopher, the wise, the, the references to the gods and the heroes of old. Paul says, all I'm going to do is show up and preach Jesus. Amen. That couldn't possibly work. You've got two giant letters in your Bible about the Corinthian church that was planted that way. And that ought to be our attitude too. That we ought to not only believe with childlike faith, but we ought to be calling people to the same childlike faith. You must be born again. It seems pretty basic. What else do you got? I don't have anything else, Paul would say. Paul had preached in Athens, and it's not that it was wrong for him to do so, but he had, he had preached this great message where he gave all the great proofs and all the, the demonstration of how the true and living God is the same God that was unknown to them, and he made everything. And they heard that, and the second he said resurrection, they laughed at him. And he's like, you know what? We're just going to do cross. Not that he wasn't doing it before. But he's like, I, I don't have anything else to say except Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And I hope today to remind you of the, the power of that simple faith. And, and how do we talk to people who feel they're too smart to be saved? Maybe you feel you're too smart to be saved. But we've got to remember, I wanted to outline that at the beginning. It is simple belief in the gospel that saves. 
And that's where we need to keep our conversation with people. So no doubt you've come across these people. Let's talk about this a little bit. What do I mean by somebody who says they're too smart to be saved? This is somebody who believes that their intellect precludes them from believing. And we're going to look at the first strain that I discussed, which is the modern side. This is the reliance on empirical proof, the scientific method. The only way to know anything is through hypothesis and testing, etc. And such a person believes, I cannot believe in God. I cannot believe in the Bible. I cannot believe in creation or the soul or the afterlife because I know too much about science to even consider such things. You've, you've met these people before. There's usually a very smug attitude associated with this sin of intellectual arrogance. Very indulgent, kind of chuckling under their breath as they talk to you. Very patronizing. You know, if you want to believe that, if that helps you, you peasants, then that's great. You know, it, you believe that if you want to. But, you know, I, I really have a, a brain that is able to comprehend deeper things than this. So I, I, I couldn't lower myself to think of something like that. But it's really not kind because the attitude there is because you are inferior and not as smart as me, religion works for you. But because I am just so brilliant and intelligent and able to comprehend deep thoughts, then Christianity is de facto off limits for me. It would be beneath me. We're beyond that. There are some cultural examples I'll point out here. The classic ones are the guys known as the New Atheists, of course, guys like Richard Dawkins, guys like Sam Harris and Lawrence Krauss, who really, when you hear them, don't have a whole lot to say against the faith other than that's something that dumb people believe. Don't you know? And they list off, what I'm going to get to in a minute, a bunch of irrelevant scientific facts that have no bearing on the truth of salvation. But because I know these I'm smart, and I cannot believe a dumb person's religion. If you're familiar with the show Rick and Morty, that is the whole attitude of that show. Smart people can't believe in meaning in life or God or faith or any of that. Dumb people can, and maybe it's better to be dumb, because then you can get on with your life, but smart people have to figure it out for themselves. And here's the thing, and you'll know this, so let's just be real. A person, in order to believe this, does not necessarily need to be a particularly intelligent person. They are automatically qualified as smart by denying the gospel and believing in science instead. How do I know you're so smart? Well, because I don't believe in religion. That makes me smart. By referring to the, the universe and to the stars and to the genome, that makes me smart. That makes me more intelligent than you. And we can point at people like John Lennox, who is the, the chair of mathematics, I believe, at Cambridge University, who is an on-fire Christian. Like, this guy is a world-renowned mathematician, and he believes this. What, what do you do with your life, you know? What makes you so smart? If he can believe it and you don't, but you say you're smarter, say, well, he, he must not be that smart after all then. Because there's an assumption embedded in that, is there not? By disbelieving the faith, that makes me intelligent. And this is why a lot of people will go after it. Because it makes them seem smarter. The second strain of this is the postmodern side, which is a reliance on experience and narrative and feeling. This person cannot believe in God or the gospel or angels or heaven or hell because they've just seen too much. They've known too much about the suffering in the world, whether it's their own or somebody else's. And you want to talk about the gospel with them, and instead of saying, well, what about the rapid expansion of the universe and the impending heat death, you know, they say, let me tell you a story. Maybe it's their own story. 
You know, well, I grew up and I was abused as a kid, or my boss did this to me, or haven't you heard about what happened in the Holocaust? Don't you know what's happening over in this part of the world? It's story, it's narrative, it's feeling. And we can dismiss that as being silly, but we do that to our own peril because it is a very attractive ideology. And these people don't get to be as, as arrogant outwardly as, as the first kind was. They're more angry and bitter. And they might say, listen, you might be able to accept your faith. I wish I could, but I'm just too raw, man. I've got to look at life the way it is. I'm too real. I've seen the way it goes. And this is like where phrases like red-pilled and woke come in. I'm awake. I can see the way things are. I took the red pill. I can see what's really out there. And I can't ignore it. But you know, if you want to do that, go right ahead. It's the same pride. It just looks different. Instead of cloaking itself in a lack of emotion, it's cloaking itself in an excess of emotion. But it's the same thing. I'm too raw. I'm too real. And again, it's the same intellectual thing. I can accept things that you can't. That's why I cannot be saved. If you've ever read The Catcher in the Rye, that's, that's Holden Caulfield, the protagonist of that story. He just sees the hypocrisy in everything. Therefore, I can't believe in anything because everybody's a big old hypocrite. If you've ever read Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky, the main character in that book is working for what is essentially the DMV or the post office, and he makes life nasty for everybody else, and he can't have a relationship with anybody, and he kind of lives in this little hole in the wall. But he's always talking about how smart he is. I, I don't want a good job because I can see how foolish all that is anyway. I can accept the reality of the world. And Dostoevsky was a, was a Christian. He's kind of showing the irony there. Like, you think you're so smart, but you got nothing going for you. Well, I just see the, the terrors of the world, and I, I just can't believe. A more modern example of that is, would be a man like Jordan Peterson, who looks at the pain of the world and says things like, I don't see how anybody could truly believe in God when they see how horrible things are, as much as I would love to. Again, sounds real nice, but there's arrogance under that, isn't there? I wish I could be like you, just, just simple and able to believe simple things as if we've not thought these things through. And once again, just like the person who is a modern, intellectual, arrogant person does not need to be especially smart to claim this, the postmodern, intellectual, arrogant person does not need to be particularly experienced to claim this. Amen. A lot of these folks, and I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just being real, are like 15, 16 years old. And you say, oh, listen, I know your life might have been hard, but what, what have you really seen? You know, what have you grown up and, and, and experienced? You know, what, where is all of this coming from? Because you had to have been taught it because you, you haven't lived long enough to experience that. And somebody who's lived a long life and has learned to handle these things, it's all dismissed. I must be smarter than you because this is what I believe. So it confers an immediate superiority on the person to believe this because I know the truth. I know what's real. And he said, but, but look at this. It's actually not as bad as you say, but it's my truth. And we were laughing at that phrase a few years ago, and now it's everywhere, isn't it? Don't contradict somebody else's truth. When they tell the story, that's real for them. It's not that it's their opinion and be respectful and be kind, like Paul says, weep with those who weep. No, it's true because they experienced it. And you know, these two things, the modern and the postmodern intellectual arrogance, they all sound very fresh and new and frightening. And especially those who believe it are like, we have reached a new age, right? We can't believe in God anymore because of this new discovery we found. 
we can't believe in God anymore because look at this new atrocity that just happened. But, you know, Hebrews 13.8 says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You could apply that man is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're no different than we used to be. The church faced one of its first heresies called Gnosticism. It was based on a secret spiritual knowledge that you needed to be saved. And it's very similar to this today. There is a certain knowledge that once you gain, it liberates you from the need for salvation. Because you've already attained it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, same chapter that we read before, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So sometimes we say, but this seems so simple and so obvious. Paul's like, if you're not thinking with your spirit, you're never going to receive these things. And neither of these attitudes demonstrates childlike humility. And so saving faith eludes such people because the Lord does not abase himself before men. The Lord is kind and the Lord is patient. He'll do everything he can, but far be it from the Lord to bow down to the pretensions of man. And the gospel has answers to both of these attitudes, which again, I'm trying to show they're really one. It's all pride after all, isn't it? I'm too smart to be saved. Somebody like me could never accept something like that. So let's look first of all at the answers the the gospel has to some of these. And I want to maybe take some of the sting out of this for you, because if you're unfamiliar with it, you can be intimidating. But let's look at this. For for the modern, for the person that is, is obsessed with, they use words like empirical a lot. You know, and they say, you've got to be able to prove things empirically or I'm not going to believe them. And they throw out these defeater arguments that I can't believe that because of this. And they throw that out there. But I've found rarely, if ever, do the things that are thrown out even touch the gospel. I'm talking about it doesn't even enter the same realm as the gospel. And you almost say this is completely irrelevant. What does this have to do with this over here? So let's talk about some of these things. Here are the four that you often hear. I can't believe in the gospel because what about evolution? And this is an interesting one because for somebody who says, I demand everything be proven to me empirically, (laughs) evolution is something that is, and I'm not even being abrasive here, that cannot be demonstrated empirically because you don't have millions of years to demonstrate it. What, what has been done is we evaluate something like the classic one is the finches, right? That if you put a bunch of big beak finches together on an island, all the finches there are going to end up with big beaks, right? That's just dog breeding, right? That's how we get pugs and bulldogs and, you know, Yorkies and things like that. But what that is then extrapolated out to say, I bet that if you bred fish long enough, you'd get lizards. And if you bred the lizards long enough, you'd get birds. And, that, and that's the extrapolation. But that cannot be demonstrated. And so you are using what is apparently a scientific method to make decidedly unscientific conclusions. To say, I believe that just as rocks and sticks change, that eventually it could change from being dead to being alive. Or from being unconscious to being conscious. These are things that have nothing to do with the empirical scientific method. But it's just thrown out there as, well, don't you know this? You can't be saved. And I always want to come back to this and say, well, hold on. I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about sin. We'll get to that later. I'm talking about Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. I know folks that were evolutionary scientists that got saved because they thought there's no way this works without God. So there's that. Secondly, the other one is the Big Bang. Well, we know that if we look at the expansion of the universe, if we trace it all backwards at its current rate, you end up with, this is a scientific word, a singularity. That the world was infinitely dense and infinitely hot and infinitely small, and then it blew up. 
And in order for it to work, for the first couple minutes, the laws of physics had to mean absolutely nothing. And they say, so therefore, I don't need God. But you just described something that is scientifically impossible. You call it a singularity. You gave it a scientific term. It doesn't mean that it changes what it actually is. You might say, well, this could only be possible if there was somebody to, you know, make it go bang in the first place. Or here's another one you always hear. Well, the universe is so big, you think that we're the only ones out here? Again, what does that have to do with the gospel at all, right? That has nothing to do with it. But then the other thing, too, is the more they start to look out, and I love astronomy and planets and all that stuff, so I love to look into it. The, The telescopes are getting stronger and stronger, and we're discovering more and more planets. The farther we look, we're realizing there's nobody there. It should have been, but there's not. And the, the farther the telescopes look, the more and more likely it turns out that we are, in fact, alone out here. But it's so big, though. Anything could be out there. Well, that's not scientific. That's an assumption. I'm not even trying to be mean. Again, that's not a scientific thing to say. That's saying, I'll bet it's so big, there's probably something out there. Seems like there's not. Well, there must be. But that's not a scientific conclusion, you see. Now we're debating faith again. And the fourth one and this is, this is an interesting one, but I have very little patience for it. Well, I believe in what's called the many worlds theory. There are infinite universes of infinite variations, and therefore we happen to live in the one where everything just, just works. Okay, you can't prove that. Well, but the math makes it work. But you, you can't demonstrate that. Because it's an entirely separate universe, there is no way to test it. So this is just an idea, and that, that solves all your problems. Well, we just happen to be in the one where that works. That's not very scientific. That just takes one explanation. You talk about the God of the gaps. You've got the multiverse of the gaps, that you just stick it in wherever things seem to not make a whole lot of sense. It's more fiction than science, you might say. It's all speculation. But all these things I want to show, none of them affect the central truth of salvation. None of them demonstrate, therefore... Jesus Christ could not have died on the cross for the remission of sins, and there, there can be no God. Now, I've been accused of this. Well, you're not a scientist. You're a pastor. You are right. But if I'm meddling outside of my area of expertise, then so is the scientist who presumes to meddle in areas like theology and philosophy because they're qualified to study the universe or rocks or animals or whatever it is. And that's, again, that arrogance. Well, if I'm smart in this area, I must be smart everywhere else. There's a flaw in that attitude. And you know what the flaw in this attitude is? Here we go. This is, we take an observation, and then we make a definitive, what you call an ontological judgment. Work with me. Ontological means the study of being, right? For example, you look at the fact that most mammals have five bones in whatever their hand or or wing or whatever it is. Therefore, they all must have evolved from the same source. That's an extrapolation. All you're observing is that they all have five bones. Why couldn't God have made them that way? That seems like a cop-out. No more than a cop-out than what you said. You just demonstrated that we all have the same shaped hands or that the neurons in our brains seem to work the same way. Well, if God was making brains, wouldn't you think they'd all be about the same? That's a cop-out. No, no more than a cop-out than what you just said. Just by observing the way things work does not explain why they work or how they began to work. And if you want to say, well, I've got to explain the world without God, then you're going to come up with some pretty radical ideas. But it's not the same thing. It's, it's an intellectual pride that is couched in these things that are rather easy to have a discussion about him, but you begin to talk about it, and you're not having a talk any longer. The person begins to chuckle at you. and say, oh, Well, if you just understood this, then, well, explain it to me. I just, I can't believe you don't understand. Well, would you mind telling me? I just, I can't just right now. It's like, if it's so easy, I'm prepared to explain everything that I've got. 
I'm prepared to have this conversation with you. But that's it, that pride and that arrogance. This also affects the postmodern existentialist, as I said, who denies any objective reality. So you, you've heard that there are some folks that want to tear down mathematics because it is oppressing certain groups and around the world, and you've got to get rid of that because science is, is, has been bad for us. Not really caring whether or not it's true, all they're caring about is their story, that it's been bad for us, therefore we want to get rid of it. That is absolutely super postmodern. Not caring about the objective facts, but caring about the experience. And this person does the same thing. They make an observation, and then they make an ontological determination. Have you heard this one before? Like when, when let's use an example of uh, homosexuality. When we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about how Jesus died for people, and someone throws something like, gay people exist, okay? And we go, I never doubted that they did. Because there's a philosophical leap being made there. Follow me on this one. You say, well, because there is somebody whose sexuality is different from what the Bible says is normal and good, that is proof that there's no such thing as normal sexuality. And you can apply that to all kinds of things. For example, there's no such thing as a right or good marriage. Well, how do you know that? Because these people have two husbands or two wives. This is a single family. This is a polygamous family. It, it can be whatever it wants. You say, okay, but I'm talking about what's right and what goes down the center. But they say the existence of different kinds of marriage proves that there cannot be only one kind of marriage. They're making an observation and making an ontological determination. That's why they say you can't say that somebody's wrong. Because the fact that there is more than one means that there can be as many as you like. That's a major logical leap. But it's, it's stated very ferociously, isn't it? And before too long, you're not really having a discussion. You're having a fight. For example, the fact that there is sorrow in the world means that there cannot be a good God. To which I would say, why not? The Bible explains this to us. If there is such a thing as good then why is there such a thing as sorrow? And I see pain everywhere, therefore I can't believe in that anymore. And it seems foolish, but this is being made every day. Or, for example, there cannot be such a thing as the, what they call the gender or the sexual binary because there are some people that don't fit in those categories. And we would say, well, we would say that such a person is a deviation from that. But for them, they say, this is proof positive that it can be whatever you want. For example, my experience of despair or pain or oppression or whatever it is, debunks anybody else's experience of something else. This is my truth. It is real because this is what I've experienced. But we need to say this. Disagreement on a subject is not evidence that you cannot know. This is a very academic thing to do. And I think as more of us are going to college, we're picking up this attitude. We're starting to apply it everywhere. Here's what the college professors will do. If, if you're in academia, you don't really want to take a strong stand on something. You always want to use words like, it seems, or perhaps, or it could be argued that. And you hold this agnostic position on the, on the most important issues of the day. And then you say, well, I think that the, this is the only way to heaven. Well, that can't be true because look at all of us. We, we believe that you can't know. But it's like, you can't use your own agnosticism as proof that agnosticism is right. I'm serious about this. You can't use the fact that there's disagreement as proof that there's no answer. You know, you can't do that in math class, right? Two plus two equals what? Four, five, six, and seven. Well, we disagree. There must be no answer. Well, let's apply that to morality, right? And that's what's happened. You apply this to marriage. 
Say, what's the right way to do marriage? Well, we do it this way, we do it that way. We do, I, I guess there's no right way to do it. That's postmodern intellectual arrogance. So when the Christian comes in and says, I have the word of God, you must humble yourself and abandon all of these intellectual pretensions to be saved, they're kept out of there. And it all sounds so smart, but a lot of this is just a way of affirming your own opinions with big words. Really. Say, listen, I, I, I'm just so smart. And you throw out words, like I said, like empirical. And it's funny because you'll apply it in ways that have nothing to do with empirical. You know, when you're talking about things that are metaphysical and not, not scientific, for example. Or you use words like truth in ways that really mean more experience and one person's opinion. For example, when a modern person looks at the Bible and they see for the fact that the number 40 is used often by the Lord to signify judgment. They say, okay, so if the number 40 means judgment, and we see it everywhere there is judgment, we know that there can't be a correlation between numbers and real spiritual truth, so this must be made up. No, that's not evidence. That's your own bias coming out. You could just as easily make the conclusion that God is actually kind of into numbers, and it means something to him. Well, the Gospels must have been forged because it all just fits together too perfectly. Daniel could not have been written when it says it was written because it's got prophecy that was fulfilled. That just says something about your belief in prophecy, not about the ways that we're supposed to be dating the books of the Bible, for example. Or the postmodern who sees that the Bible has one perspective, therefore it can't be right. The, the classic one is the, the feminist reading of Hosea that I've seen. That Gomer, the adulterous wife in that story, is presented as the one that needs to be saved and come to repentance. She doesn't get to stay her side of the story. Therefore, you can't trust it. And both of these groups rely upon the weight of group authority to press their point. Say, I believe that God created the world. How can you believe that? Science says. No, science theorizes. And I believe that this is the way that... that God has made things. I believe that God has made everything perfectly and wonderfully. How can you say that when look at the wealth of scientists and, and the, the documents and the books and the journals that have been written and the experiments that have been done? You say, okay, but you're, you're all saying the same thing, though. Nothing has changed in your argument. There's just more of you. And say, so, well, you have, to, you have to get in line because this is what everybody says. So does the postmodern. They say, don't you see all of this? Don't you see our movement coming through? You've got to get out of the way of us. Don't you see these people have a different opinion? They have a different opinion. They have a different opinion. So you've got to open up your mind to say that there can be any opinion that you like. Weighing on group authority or even pressure. I'm going to kick you out of this university unless you, you capitulate. You're going to lose your job if you keep standing on this. We're going to take away your tax-exempt status if you preach something different which is decidedly, again, non-scientific, isn't it? That's just pressure. 2 Peter 3.3 says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That's really what it is, isn't it? Following their own sinful desires. And 2 Timothy 3.7 said about the same kind of people who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I've been examining and investigating religion for 50 years, and... You know, I find it fascinating. And Paul's like, well, what use is that? You haven't come to a knowledge of the truth yet. Jesus said you search the scriptures because you think you have life in them, but they testify of me. You're reading my Bible and studying my Bible, but if you haven't found me, you're doing it wrong. I'm trying to show you that the attitudes of folks who claim to be too smart to be saved, that the things that undergird all of that are hollow, and they don't touch the truth of the gospel, except in their minds. 
I'm too smart to be saved. It's really not the case. And also, by the way, it's interesting to me that some of these folks want to talk about they're, they're the, the rebels, right? We're the ones standing for truth. We're the ones standing for you know, the, the oppressed and for the minority. And we're the ones standing for the, the evidence to be weighed. And we're over here and we're saying, but we're the ones that are being pushed down by all you people. So what are you in the minority of? Which majority exactly are you fighting against? You know, we're not living in medieval Europe where the church is going to burn you at the stake, my friend. But you, you can cloak yourself in that because you're this warrior that's standing against the world. And the criteria by which such people judge truth is insufficient. So let's ask this question. Is there a better way to evaluate these ideas? There is, actually. There's one that Jesus taught us. Matthew 7. You all know this passage. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says, how do you judge ideas? By the fruit they produce. Their results the change that they work in the people that hold to them. That's something I think we all could agree on, don't you think? If a philosophy or an ideology is correct, we would hope that it would have good results. Amen. If it's not good, we would hope that it would show bad results. Our culture dove headlong into modern scientism. We learned a whole lot, but you know what? It doesn't give you any tools to evaluate what you're learning. And you throw out God, and now you have no way to face what you're discovering. And that gave rise to what was called existentialism, which is all about that angst. If the universe is this big, and if I'm only the end of a train of billions of years of mud and goo you know, evolving and dying, and th then who am I? And if I see society and society is all corrupt, who am I? And the angst that comes along with that. And when you do that, suicide skyrocket. Depression grows. Addiction. Because i got to be able to handle all this pain. Anxiety. And I found that those things are the worst among the people who claim to be the smartest. I found that. That's just my experience. It's not in your Bible, but I've seen that. The smart ones that laugh at Christians and laugh at people who believe, if they're not laughing at that, they're laughing about the depression and the anxiety that they're struggling with because they realize that the world has nothing to offer them in their own ideology. And so after that, what's happening? We dove into that, but now that in response, you've got the postmodern idea arising that says if Math and science, is apart from God, is going to teach us that the universe has no meaning. Then down with math and down with science. We're going to do what makes us feel better. Because we've already accepted the idea that the world has no meaning. Therefore, let's get rid of all the reminders that the world has no meaning. And so now we're rejecting the objective truth that we can find through science and through study for our own truth. And as this happens, it gets worse and worse. You're watching the collision happening in real time today. You're watching the, the changing of the guard of, of world philosophy. You're watching it happen. And we've all become those academics where you're removed at a stretch from life and from your own soul, where you evaluate everything through this distant lens. And so it makes your soul thin and weak, and you're not experiencing the joy and the color of life that God's promised. It's bearing bad fruit. Depression is a function of pride. If you are the most important thing in the whole world, you're going to get bummed out because you know what you're like. This is what the, the book Pilgrim's Progress calls the sloth of despond. 
where you start your walk with the Lord, but the depression just sinks down and holds you. So this is where it is, then I'd rather not think about these things. I'd rather just go back to the way I was. They're too smart to humble themselves and to believe in what cannot be proven to them. Because both of those ideologies, they place the burden of life on you, but they don't give you anything that is worthwhile from it. The world has no meaning. Go out and have fun. We've got to create our own meaning, but we're not doing a very good job with that, are we? Instead, we're shooting ourselves at record rates. We're overdosing at record rates. You can't survive that. We've got to raise the banner for science. Well, where does that end? How, does, how is science supposed to guard you morally? Nazi Germany was very into science. They were willing to go so far in science, they are willing to experiment on live people. Well, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, and I, I know most scientists, almost all, would not do that. But what in your worldview prevents that? Why is that wrong? Well, it's wrong. Well, tell me why it's wrong. Well, it's not good for humanity. But what if it was good for humanity? Well, I don't know. Okay, well, what about the postmodern? Raise that up. It's all about yourself. It's all about the individual or the group or whatever it is. And you've got to find your own truth. Where does that lead? That leads to this computer. I've looked into the depths of my soul and there's nothing there. And you know what? I don't think there's anything in anybody else either. So I'm going to go out in such a way that demonstrates to the whole world nothing has any meaning and it doesn't matter. Solomon went through this process. Did you know that? Ecclesiastes 1. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon said, I'm so smart because God gave me all this wisdom. I'm going to learn everything. And I've learned that life is hard and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's what the Bible tells us. Now listen, he gets to the end and he realizes in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and several places along through the book as well, trust the Lord. God is what gives life meaning. God is what gives it purpose. God is what makes your labor worthwhile. God is what makes the pain worthwhile and the injustice bearable. Because God has given us a simple gospel that cuts straight through all that. I love you so much, I sent my son to die on the cross for you. And I raised him from the dead so that you could know for sure. And the fruit of the gospel is good, isn't it? And everybody wants to point at the worst example of the church all the time. Well, you know what the church did? You know, the, the church burned people at the stake. Okay, yeah, but let's consider. At that time, there were other Christians that were even violently saying, that's not the gospel, and going the other way. We look at people in the church that are full of legalism or they're full of hypocrisy. And they say, well, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. It's like, yeah, that hypocrite is Jesus' word, man. Jesus knew that too. Christians are to be constantly, constantly reforming and coming back. But when you fully put your trust in Jesus and you let him take hold of your life, there's an old song that I love and used to sing with my dad all the time. There is joy in the Lord. There is love in his spirit. There is hope in the knowledge of him. We can face death without fear because we know there's something waiting on the other side. We can love other people without them loving us back because we know that we receive love first. We can have joy because we know that all the guilt and all the shame has been paid for and forgiven. You can't buy that. You can't invent that. You can't meditate your way into that. I'm going to hum and sit and do yoga until I'm so centered that I don't feel bad about life anymore. Then you go outside and someone cuts you off in traffic. What do you do then? Don't you know that I have a God in my soul? 
As Jesus said, in order to be great in the kingdom, you've got to humble yourself like a child. It comes right back to that. Humble yourself. You've got to be willing to say, I just believe. Well, I don't believe in a blind faith. The Lord told Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Isn't that interesting? The world, is a, is a, because it's corrupted by sin, it's a terrible place in a lot of ways. And if you're going to evaluate it like Solomon without the Lord, you're going to see how terrifying it actually is. And it'll make you terrible too. God calls you to say, come and bow at my feet and trust that your father knows best, like a little child. Well, I'm just, I could never accept that. Well, the ones who have are the ones that have found what you're seeking, my friend. Well, there's got to be another way. Well, we haven't found one yet. Well, that's a cop-out. No, it's not. My gospel that God has given to me allows me to look life straight in the face without blinking. Well, I can't. I'm tough. Yeah, okay. All right. I know, I know how that goes. Everybody likes to pretend they're tough. And then they say things like, but the burden of life is just too much for me to bear. Because I accept that there is a greater truth that is able to handle all the facts and all the experience. That when we do study and we learn things, my God is able to answer those questions. When I do experience things that are heartbreaking and impossible to understand, I know that there's a God who's wiser than me and gets all of that. And I know that he's done something about this world. I, I knew this illustration before where the house is burning down, God smashed a hole in the side and said, quick, this way. And we look at it and we go, what, just one hole? I want to go out this way. I'm not going to open a, a door that way. Well, then I'm not going out through that door. I wanted to go out this way. There is no door over there. Well, you just don't love me then. No, 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 that's pride. It's intellectual arrogance. Science can tell us how. It can never tell us why. Experience tells you how to feel, but it doesn't tell you what is real. Every one of us needs to take a leap of faith and choose to believe in the gospel. As Christians, we place a higher value on faith than on evidence. We place a value on the Spirit. That's why Paul said, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the cool part is, once you actually put your faith in Christ, all these things start to click into place. And you realize, oh yeah, so that does actually make a lot of sense. The Lord does explain these things. The Lord does give me the answers to my questions. But the Lord comes to us and says, before you get all that, you've got to come and receive my son, Jesus Christ. Because you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. Because as 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And as I was saying at the beginning, sometimes we get so far into the weeds of one of those things. We want to reach people who walk by sight. But along the way, we ourselves start walking by sight, and we're unable to reach them by the time we get there. We want to reach the people who walk by experience and their own truth by doing the same thing to where we get to the point we can't find our way back to the narrow road anymore. The world's tearing itself apart because we chose to examine the world without God, and we could not understand what we found. And so in that panic, we've rejected that knowledge in favor of our own self. And now what do we have? We have pain. We have chaos hurting people. But in Christ, you find the truth that God is real, that God is holy, that he loves us, that he desires to save us, that he's prepared to come and make his dwelling with you now and forever. And it's always so heartbreaking when I share that with somebody and they go, you know, I, I wish I could believe that. The answer is just believe that. It'll radically transform your whole life as it has countless others. If you're too smart to be saved, I urge you to let go of your arrogance and receive God's love for you. The first temptation that man faced was at the tree of what? 
knowledge. The desire to be like God. And we gained knowledge, but we lost our innocence. We were able to see all that, but we weren't able to do anything about it. And that's still the case today. But there's a man named Jesus Christ who was not tainted by the sin of Adam, who in fact was God's son incarnate, who died on that cross to take the penalty that was deserved, as God had told Adam, in the day you eat of that fruit, you surely die. He rose from the dead. I'm here testifying. There has been a long tradition of men. You ask, how do you know the resurrection is true? Because the ones who saw it taught others that they saw it. They taught them the story. And then those folks taught somebody else. And then they taught somebody else. We are carrying, I myself right now, I'm carrying a 2,000-year torch of testimony that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We're still holding to that, and it's still turning the world upside down. The simple gospel of Christ will change your life. But if you are too smart to come to salvation, the Lord is going to continue just to give you that simple mandate, you must be born again. You will never understand until you believe. And if you say, I'll never believe until I understand, then God is going to wait. He's going to continue to call you, and you might have to be broken. But the good news is you can be broken in spirit right now.